Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News team, Jim Paplava and John Leffler. We're really leading the way most of the session today with the NASDAQ, the outperforming index, and the second record close for the tech sector for the S&P. Consumers are in very good shape. Their balance sheet, their incomes, wages are going up. Their debt levels are low. But it's mortgage credit, small business credit, large corporate credit. Business sentiment is almost the highest level it's ever been. Consumer sentiment is the highest levels. Markets are wide open. Housing's in short supply. And my guess is mortgage credit will expand a little bit, not going back to subprime. Right now, it's feeling strong. I mean, if we're in the sixth inning, we have our sluggers coming to bat, number three, four, and five in the lineup. Business is good. Well, we begin this week with the NASDAQ and the Russell 2000 breaking out to all-time records, and we have a decline in pullback in oil prices as well as interest rates. And on this Friday, worries over trade wars possibly breaking out as the G7 meets in Canada. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplava, and welcome to this week's edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. Coming up in Hour 1, Art Hill will be joining me from StockCharts.com. He's really bullish on the small cap sector breaking out. It's not just the NASDAQ and also the Russell 2000, the mid cap and small cap S&P breaking out. And he said basically the advanced decline line is supporting that. Looks like higher stock prices ahead, although he is watching financials in the healthcare sector. The healthcare sector is the third largest weighting within the S&P. The financials, the second. He sees oil trends pulling back, but a bigger uptrend ahead. Art says this is becoming a stock picker's market. Later on in the program, Dr. Keith Barron will also be joining us as we look at the gold market. We're going to take a different perspective. We're not just going to try to tell you where the price of gold is going. We're looking at peak gold, and it's not just coming from someone like Dr. Keith Barron. It's coming from some of the biggest gold producers. But we're going to look at the industry itself, the companies that produce the gold and the companies that explore for it. What's going on in both segments of the gold mining sector? All of that coming up, along with Ryan Poplava on what moved the markets this week, all in Hour 1. And I'm John Leffler coming up on the big picture today. Jim did mention the pullback in oil prices, but if you've been tanking up lately, you'll notice the prices have been scunching up at the pump. And what is the question before us then? Is there a probability that we will see higher oil prices? So what we're going to do during the first part of the big picture is examine the case both for and against why oil prices are more likely to head higher than lower, and then what that means for investors. And back in 2012, you remember we were telling investors to buy blue chip stocks. I mean, after all, the Fed was in quantitative easing. Interest rates had banged down to zero. Worked pretty well for a while, but it seems like some of these dividend stocks are having difficulties now. So the question is, do dividends matter? That's the second part of the big picture. All of that coming up today on the Financial Sense News Hour. 
And first, we turn to say once again, welcome back, Ryan Paplava. And the purpose here is to talk about the drivers and the catalysts this week in the financial markets. You know, judging from what we saw transpire during the week, Ryan, it looks like things started off fairly calmly versus the gyrations, of course, we saw due to Italian politics last week. And at least for the moment, that's passed us by, but I'm sure it's going to raise its head again. But anyway, what else was going on? You're definitely right about that. Last week was very interesting. It was nice to see the markets wake up a little bit in some ways. It was a little bit scary. You know, were we looking at another sovereign debt crisis situation? Uh, Credit default swaps were going up on all the debt over there and even some of the debt over here on our side. And that was a bit concerning to us that the credit markets were getting nervous. Of course, things resolved themselves out. The Italian coalition, the five-star movement in the league started to move more towards the center, saying, you know, we don't want to leave the EU. We're not looking for a new referendum, for a new vote. They were able to come together and, and agree on some things. And that paved the way towards the recent rally we've been seeing in equities. And overall, there were some small catalysts kind of sprinkled all about this week. Uh, a lot of individual stocks, a lot of information for a few of them that had great changes this week. But the biggest thing, I think, which was what we saw was a continued tit-for-tat in the headlines over the continued trade disputes between the U.S. and its trade partners. So a lot of which sounded like bickering and something of which Director Larry Kudlow called family feuding this week. If you were just following the Twitter, you know, there was a lot of back and forth. That was because we continued to get fresh information this week from China recently that over the weekend there were some comments that the country was prepared to backtrack on recent negotiations should the U.S. move forward with a lot of the tariffs it's been proposing against China, which I think was back towards $50 billion. And an incremental increase, they announced this week, of around $25 billion that they were willing to import more of U.S. goods, again, as long as we're not looking to implement our $50 billion in tariffs. And that brings the total right now, the Wall Street Journal reported, at around $70 billion in farming and energy-related products that, again, the Chinese are willing to import more of. Additionally, the U.S. struck a deal. You remember this about maybe two weeks ago. Trump said regarding Chinese telecom ZTE, get it done. And what he meant was for uh, negotiations to essentially remove a lot of the sanctions that are on that company right now. And so a deal was struck. The Chinese telecom ZTE is able to, again, begin buying from U.S. suppliers, etc. There are some stipulations. There's a new compliance team that will be U.S.-led, new board of directors. You know, they'll have to come up with a new one. And there's a $1 billion penalty that's going to be assessed against the company. But essentially, this removes all the sanctions and allows them to trade with the U.S. And then... Following that, China announced that they were ready to approve the Qualcomm purchase of NXP. So some really good progress there. It appeared overall that there was essentially some incremental improvement with trade with China. At the end of the week, John, there was the G6 plus one meeting. At least that's what it's being called. And that's because of uh, really all of the highlight of the isolation that uh, a lot of the rest of our trade partners are saying that the U.S. is in now. And seemingly, if you read some of the tweets from French President Macron, he said basically the American president may not mind being isolated, but neither do we mind signing a six-country agreement if needed. And that's where I think we're getting that G6 plus one. President Trump, of course, reminded Macron, 
that the EU surplus with the U.S. was $151 billion and that they've been charging massive tariffs and have had non-monetary barriers in place. While this was all great headline material for the media, John, if you look at the market, it really didn't create too many waves. Equities weathered it just fine. We made some progress in equities in the U.S. overall from that. So overall, a great news in trade for the most part. Of course, it's still, it's a moving ball right now, back and forth. And again, China said that they're willing to backtrack if the U.S. continues to move forward. So we'll just have to see here next week if there's any more information over the weekend. Likely there's going to be from the G6 plus one. And it does seem that after a quick meeting with 13 GOP senators, they agreed it was really probably best right now not to weaken President Trump's negotiating power over trade at this time. And the reason that comes into a factor here, there's been some consideration that tariffs would need congressional approval. So that's where it is. It's an ongoing event, and there'll be more to come. All right, so what else happened this week that moved the markets? Were we just following the trend in last week's recovery from the Italian political adventure? Uh, obviously easing concerns of an Italian referendum to leave the EU and economic news from the U.S. Where does that stand? Yeah, for the most part, uh, the biggest catalyst this week, beyond a lot of the trade negotiation comments, the headlines, the back and forth, news from China. But the other one was news that the ECB officials all week, essentially starting around, I think, Wednesday, when there was a couple of articles about it, a couple of key officials started talking out about it. They're saying next week, as the European Central Bank meets to review policy directives, it could be a live week where they review and decide on the tapering of its purchase program. So next week is going to be a very important week in regards to that. Immediately, the euro rallied this week on that news, and we started to see some yields go up in Europe. Weidman said the market expectations for QE ending in 2018 were plausible. Not said that it is reasonable to announce the end of asset buying soon. And Peter Prayett said that it's clear that next week the governing council will have to make the assessment on whether the progress so far has been sufficient to warrant a gradual unwinding of our net asset purchases. So that's three officials all saying the same thing. It's highly likely that at least... They're going to talk about it, maybe announce that there's a discussion and what that discussion is going to look like. And then maybe we get an official announcement next month. But like I said, the euro rallied very strongly in the news and so did bond yields, which of course didn't help Italy, which has seen its yields skyrocket over the past two weeks. And that kind of makes the timing of all this rather interesting, don't you think, John? Yeah, I know what it was. They were listening last week to the show. You know that. I mean, that's because, no. you, yeah, you mentioned short German bunds. That's what it was. They knew what it, you know. They were paying attention. Yeah, it's inflation. They're having inflation right now around 2. Point, I think 2% when expectations were for 1.8. Their economic GDP is averaging around 3.5%. So they're on good footing. You know, another thing that happened this week, I didn't mention it. Merkel basically said that she was open to some of the reform. There's a lot of talk right now about the ECM. And so they're really considering what tools do they have if there's situations like what just happened with Italy last week, if there's some disruptions, they're looking at all the tools they have available and they want to create some sort of IMF style of a backstop to bond purchases that's more long-term oriented rather than just their typical purchases that have been ongoing. So while they're going to taper that off, they are looking at other backstop mechanisms they can put in place when needed. But yeah, definitely those yields moved up quite a bit this week on German bonds, on Italian Italian bonds, Spanish bonds, and 
That helped the euro. At the lows, the euro was priced at, I think, a dollar spot 15 versus the dollar and rose to settle up almost 1.177, so almost 1.8. A nice big rally there in, in the euro. Now, was there any other commodity or economic news that we should go over? There were a few stories around oil this week and on kind of both sides of the journal, you know, the accounting of looking at oil going up and down. The U.S. asked OPEC to increase production by a million barrels a day, and that was just announced this week. And of course, OPEC's going to do what it wants to do. They want prices where they want it, so they're going to increase supply when they think prices have reached the price level that helps their economy the most. Then there's the U.S. Department of Energy said that U.S. crude stocks increased 2.1 million barrels versus expectations for a 3.6 million draw in the last week. And that helped lower prices. So both of those news stories helped lower U.S. crude. Another news story here that hit the lines was Venezuela has a month-long backlog in orders due to what they say is the tanker bottleneck, but likely it's maybe many other complicated issues. But there's a backlog there, and that caused Brent crude to go up to almost around $76 a barrel. So West Texas intermediate crude has been in decline over the past few weeks since articles were talking about how OPEC could increase production. So I think traders are starting to look at this idea that, hey, prices have come up. Can we increase production? And OPEC clearly thinks that they can. The U.S. thinks that OPEC can. And here we are with a U.S. crude inventory that went up when we've had a projection of them going down for some time. We had the production. That's not an issue. What's been an issue is getting that oil to the refineries as of late this year because of many other issues. But interestingly, OPEC answered back this week that it was not likely to end its production cuts until probably the end of this year. And they specifically said this week that this week's meeting, which I believe is around the 22nd, they have no plans to discuss increasing their production. But West Texas oil closed slightly lower this week from last week, near $65.58 a barrel. Economically, John, we had a very good services ISM figure came in uh, this week, was announced at 58.6. So a nice uptick there. And that complements what we saw in the manufacturing number, something we got last week and talked about on the show. The trade deficit narrowed to $46.2 billion in April, and we continue to see a bit of a trend there. These should help our second quarter prints on the GDP estimates. On the other side of the tally, Factory orders dropped 0.8% in April, but when you exclude aircraft, core durable goods were actually up month over month around almost 1% at 0.9%. The other item that was not really concerning but didn't really help was that consumer credit for April decelerated slightly, only increased by $9.2 billion in April from an increase of 12.3 in uh, March, and that was revised to, again, that 12.3. All told, one place I love to go to to get an idea for how the quarter's shaping up, you know, we talk about the economics numbers weekly, and there's a ton of them every single week. What's the big picture? Go to the Atlanta GDP Now forecast page. You can just Google it, Atlanta GDP Now, and right now there are estimates. If we looked at last week they're around 4.8%. This week they've come down a little bit based on all the numbers we got down to 4.6. But that's one of the largest estimates I've seen right now for the GDP. Most economists right now have a consensus and they'll show you this on their page between 2.6% and 3.7. So all told the ISM numbers we're seeing everything is pointing towards a better Q2 print in GDP than what we got in the first quarter.
Next month, you know, we'll see the real deal when that gets released. And Ryan, if uh, Angela Merkel needs to uh, email you over the weekend, and some of the other listeners too, if they need to get a hold of you, where can they email you? <laughs> Next week, we'll hear from the ECB, the Fed, and the Bank of Japan on policy directives. And uh, Kim Jong-un and President Trump are meeting on the 12th, but the expectations there are that negotiations will be bumpy. Funny that, right? Anyway, where can people get a hold of you? My email is ryan at paplava, P-U-P-L-A-V-A, at financialsense.com, anytime. If I misspeak, you know, please let me know. If there's a data point you don't agree with, uh, you know, that's okay. Our show is all about giving an unbiased, fair look at the economy. Not everyone paints the same picture with the same brush and colors. So there's something I'm missing in the week. Feel free to send me an email and I'll make sure to try and get all the information correctly if I misspeak ever. But I always appreciate the feedback from our listeners. So please feel free to email me. And Angela got that. So thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate it. We'll see you next week. (laughs) Take care, John. Since January, the markets have become more volatile. Uncertainty has returned once again to the financial markets as the Fed continues to raise interest rates and market liquidity has become an issue. We know eventually the Fed rate hikes could lead to another recession and bear market, which would put your portfolio at risk. Do you have an exit plan or a plan to protect your principal during the next market downturn? Well, many of you don't, and that is where Financial Sense Advisors can help. Give us a call and let us help you develop a strategy that helps you navigate both bull and bear markets and give you the peace of mind that you are prepared for any market outcome. Give us a call at Financial Sense Advisors. Call toll-free 888-486-3939. That's 888-486-3939. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. You know, Financial Sense News Hour listeners should remember that our premium members are able to hear the weekday Financial Sense News Hour featuring interviews with top economic commentators and experts. If you're not a member, here's one of the interviews you missed this week. Some of the very senior economists over here. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. About the end of central banking independence, because the central banks will have to choose between kowtowing to the politicians and doing their duty of tightening money. And I tend to think that they will kowtow to the politicians who are, after all, their ultimate owners. I also feel that as world economic conditions tighten, we have also a boom followed by a bust probably in the United States. The central bank will be asked yet again to take action to alleviate the short-term problems. And they might find that this goes against their mandate of encouraging stability. So it's been a good time to be a central banker in the last 10 years because you've been like a master of the universe helping to protect the world from a downturn. It's not going to be so great to be a central banker in the next 10 years when this time of reckoning starts to raise itself and to become doubly apparent.
Well, all the attention in the press goes to the Dow Industrials. But there's something else going on. Technology small caps are breaking out to records. Joining me on the program from StockCharts.com is Art Hill. And Art, let's talk about what is going on with technology and small caps. I have charts of the NASDAQ, the Russell, the S&P 500 small cap stocks, all of them at record levels. Well, leadership has been coming from small caps for quite a while now, actually, since March, because you had the uh, S&P moving down to test that February low in late March and early April, and the Russell 2000 and the S&P small cap 600 held above their February lows, and they were the first to break out to new highs this year in mid-May. And the S&P 500 remains below its previous high. So it's clearly been small caps for probably since March. I just wonder how much of this has to do, Art, with the dollar, because, uh, you know, we've seen a very, very strong rally in the dollar here recently. And, of course, if you're an international company like the Dow or, let's say, an S&P 500 company, you're getting 40, 50 percent of your sales overseas where, you know, the small cap stocks tend to be more domestic. So this leadership, which has been in place, seems to be accelerating. Yeah, I think that's part of the story. You know, other parts of the story could be that they might be benefiting more from the new tax regime and from that aspect too. But no question about it, the strong dollar does put a damper on large cap profits. And so it would put a favor on small caps, which derive more of their revenue from the U.S. side. And it doesn't take much to move small caps because I think the small cap universe is like less than 10% of the total U.S. investable stock market, basically, whereas the S&P 500 accounts for like 80% of the total U.S. investable stock market. So it just takes a small portion to move out of those S&P 500 stocks to really move those small caps. I want to talk about technology, which has been the stellar performer along with consumer discretionary in this market that we've seen move since the beginning of the year. I want to talk about one stock in particular, Apple. I never thought in my lifetime I would see a company art that is probably maybe seven or eight dollars away from becoming the first trillion dollar company in history. Let's talk about Apple for a minute. Well, I have to say that I've definitely done my part because my house is loaded (laughs) with Apple (laughs) devices. It's crazy. My children love them. You know, I hate to say it, but we all have an iPhone, an iPad, and a Mac. And we're using the Apple services. So who was it? Was it Julian Robinson who said, you know, go out and see what is happening and invest there and invest that way. But yeah, Apple, it's just been a steady uptrend for well over a year. And, you know, you can go back to July 2016 when it started moving higher. And, you know, it's turned a little bit more volatile over the past year, but it's still a choppy uptrend. There's clearly a movement from the lower left of the chart to the upper right. And, of course, it's near an all-time high right now. So, clearly, you want to be erring on the side of the bull. You know, the incredible thing about a company like this, if Steve Jobs was only alive today and held on to all his Apple stock, uh, he would make Jeff Bezos look like a pauper. But it's amazing to see the amount of cash 
that this company generates. And uh, that is something that's moving a lot of these stocks. I want to move on to something else that you touched upon recently and talk about the significance of that, which is the advanced decline lines you're seeing across markets are breaking out to new highs. Why don't you talk about the significance of that in terms of prices heading higher? Okay. Well, what we have is the advanced decline lines are measuring internal strength or weakness, and they call that market breadth. And what you do is you take advances minus declines every day. And if there's more advances, you add to that line. If there's more declines, then you subtract from that line. You get a cumulative line over time. And so that kind of represents the the rank and file of the index, say, for the S&P 500. Whereas, you know, the actual S&P 500 is driven by the largest stocks weighted by market cap. But the advanced decline line doesn't care if you're ExxonMobil or if you're some smaller stock in the S&P 500. An advance is plus one, a decline is minus one. And so when we look at the S&P 500 specific advanced decline line, it hit a new high already this week. And that tells you that there's good internal strength in the index. And I would expect it also to move to a new high in the coming weeks and months. And we're also seeing new highs in the mid-cap AD line, the small-cap AD line, and the NASDAQ 100 AD line. Let's talk about another sector that has been breaking out recently, and maybe this is a reflection of the tax cuts as well, although it's surprising with the rise in gas prices, and that's retail stocks. You take a look at some stocks like Macy's and others that are breaking out. Uh, Let's talk about what's going on in the retail sector, which is probably one of the areas that you want to expect to see the strength. Well, I think that's incredibly positive for the U.S. market, and it probably goes back to being a positive for small caps because, you know, retail stocks tend to be domestically oriented. Sure, some of them are going to have some overseas exposure, but most of them are going to get their sales, most of their sales from the U.S. And I like to look at the XRT, which is the retail SBDR, because it's a very broad-based retail ETF that's equally weighted, and it's got a lot of stocks, and it is closing in on a 52-week high, and it is up significantly since April. So I think we have to take that as positive for the broader economy and hence the broader stock market. Let's move on to a couple other sectors in one that's very important. It hasn't really done much of anything, and that's the healthcare sector. If you look at the ETF XLV, let's talk about the significance of healthcare stocks because they represent a significant portion of the S&P 500. Yes, they do. And I think what's dragging down healthcare would be some of these bigger names in the area. Bristol-Myers Squibb, Biogen, IDEC, Regeneron. A lot of these big pharma companies have been hit. I know Regeneron would be considered a biotech. Now, when I look at the XLV, it looks like it is firming right around the 200-day. And if it can get above its April-May highs, I think we're going to have a breakout. That's around 84. And then if you break down the healthcare sector and you look within You can see that the XBI, the biotech SBDR, is on the verge of hitting a new 52-week high. So there's clearly some strength in areas of the healthcare. I think it's just the big pharmas that have been dragging it down. 
We also look at medical devices. They hit a 52-week high this week. That would be the medical devices, iShares. And then you have the healthcare providers ETF, IHF, which is also near a 52-week high. But yeah, the fact that XLV hasn't broken out yet is probably what's weighing on the S&P and preventing it from you know challenging its high. So we need to get some participation from that sector because I believe it is the third largest sector in the S&P 500. Comes in around 13.9% of the index. Let's move on to the dollar next. It's sort of bottom there in the middle of April. We've had a real nice run. Ran into resistance around the 95 area. Let's talk about the dollar. Is this just a temporary rally or from a trend perspective, what does it look like to you? Well, you know, these trend things always depend on the time frame. Because if I look at this October-November high, we surged, you know, 88, 89 to around 94, 95, and we've hit that October, November high. And that's kind of the last significant peak to watch for to get a major trend change. But I would go ahead and say that I think the long-term trend for the dollar has changed because of the significance of the move. It's been a really sharp move that kind of is like a rocket lifting off. It's got enough thrust to suggest that this move is sustainable and it will continue. Now, we're a little bit overextended after a a 5% run from April to early June, late May. So we could get a pullback in the dollar, but I would expect it to resume that uptrend. You know, if you look at in relationship to the dollar, if you look at some of the other places around the globe, we're seeing problems in Europe, we're seeing problems in emerging markets. Art, I wonder how much of what we see going on in the market is a reflection that the U.S. has the best looking house in a global neighborhood. Well, yeah, I mean, the U.S. is looking quite good, especially, as you said, when you look at small caps and technology And that includes large cap technology. I think technology is one of these sectors where everything is clicking. The small caps within the sector and the large caps within the sector. And you look at EEM, Emerging Markets ETF, and it hasn't even challenged its April high. It's just been working its way lower since that January peak. And that's probably a reflection of the strong dollar as well. But I think clearly the U.S. is the place to be right now. Let's move on to interest rates. Uh, We got over 3% on the 10-year Treasury note. Uh, We had 3.2% on 30-year Treasury bonds. Recently, mortgage rates hit a seven-year high, but rates have been pulling back. What's your take on interest rates as you look at the charts? I think interest rates are headed higher. I think we got a scare there in the latter part of May when we had the Italian election fiasco or whatever we want to call it. And that kind of put the risk off trade in play for a few days and money moved into treasuries and that pushed interest rates lower. The 10-year did dip below 3% and it's still below 3% now, but it's had a nice bounce back. And I think the bigger trend is what is in play here. And it's going to take over if it hasn't already. And we're going to see a move higher towards that 3.5% level in the coming months. And let's talk about a related sector. 
with interest rates, and that's the financials, almost the second largest market cap weight within the S&P. Let's talk about financials. They've been kind of struggling here since the beginning of the year. Yeah, it's financials and, as you mentioned, healthcare that have been weighing on the S&P 500 because healthcare can't get that breakout. It looked like financials were going to get their breakout in May, but they got hit hard when Treasury yields pulled back sharply. But when I look at the XLF, it is holding near the 200-day moving average and trying to get a bounce up and fill that gap that we had in May when we had a gap down on the Tuesday after the holiday with the reaction to the Italian election. But again, as with healthcare and finance, we need to get a breakout above these May highs to get these two sectors back on track. And if Treasury yields can continue moving higher, I think that would help financials because I think there's a positive correlation between the direction of Treasury yields and banks, the stocks. I want to move on to commodities. With the rising dollar, you would expect commodities to soften with intermarket relationships. Let's talk about gold and oil. Oil, until recently, has been showing exceptional strength from last fall. It's pulled back after hitting, gosh, it was up almost 60% at one time, touching $70. Let's talk about gold and oil here. Okay, well, you know, looking at oil, I kind of work under the assumption that a pullback within a bigger uptrend is more of an opportunity than a threat. And if you look at the chart for oil over the past year, it's gone from the low mid-40s up to the low 70s. It's a strong uptrend. And now we've come back down from 72-ish down to around 64, 65. And that has pushed 10-day RSI below 30. It's now turning up a little bit. But I think we have a short-term oversold situation within a bigger uptrend. And I would expect that bigger uptrend to pull Trump here and exert itself and reverse that short-term pullback that we've seen and expect the bigger uptrend to continue. Let's put this into context within uh, what I call intermarket relationships are typically when you get towards the end of a market cycle, you see bonds top out first, which we saw in the summer of 2016. The next market that generally tops out would be the stock market, and then finally commodities. Well, if we look at the stock market right now, as you and I have just been discussing earlier, small cap stocks are breaking out at all levels, mid cap stocks, technology is doing well. So at least currently, it doesn't look like a trend of the market peaking anytime soon. But let's talk about intermarket relationships in when you might expect to see a transition as we head into that final cycle where stocks peak and then eventually commodities? Well, I think it's the question of how much of a rise in the 10-year Treasury yield can the stock market take. And I think once we start getting above 3.5%, that might start to create a headwind if we get above 3.5%, a headwind for the stock market. And at what price does oil and rising gasoline prices start to become a factor as well? And so I don't see those happening just yet. I think we'll get a fair warning from the price action in the stock market in that, you know, we'll start going sideways for a few months and build some sort of a topping pattern. 
But at present, you know, if I just look at the stock market, I don't see that happening. If anything, you know, maybe we're getting frothy, but that just tells you we're getting a little bit short-term overbought and possibly ripe to digest some of these gains. So given where we are right now, we've seen sort of the S&P, which has been struggling, and we're talking about a couple sectors within the S&P financials and healthcare, which is probably holding the S&P back, maybe even so on the Dow. So it's technology and small caps. As an investor, Art, what do you do in this kind of market? Do you just stay with what's working? In other words, things like the Russell small cap stocks, technology. I mean, do you chase them here? Or do you kind of hold back? Well, I think it's really, it is a stock picker's market and small caps add a little bit more volatility or risk to the equation because they tend to have higher betas. And so, you know, they're going to fluctuate more and say large caps. So if you're moving in... Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The small caps, that's going to create added risk. And I do think some groups have had quite a move. If you look at the surge that we've had in retail over the last four weeks, it's quite extensive. So I would say, you know, let the market come to you. Pick your point. You know, look at the charts. You know, you look at oil. Well, it's come back. It's come back to become short-term oversold. So it's created an opportunity. One area I might look at would be biotechs because I think those could extend further. They're showing some relative strength again. So that might be an area to look at. And then again, energy, because if oil gets that oversold bounce and continues its bigger uptrend, I think energy would benefit. And then one area I saw moving higher would be the copper miners. And copper got a big move over the last four to five days, and it could be breaking out of a big consolidation. So that might be also an area to look at. Well, Art, as we close, I wonder if you tell our listeners about StockCharts.com. It's, to me, one of the best stock charting software out there. And for somebody that's really not familiar with the program, there's even a book, Stock Charts for Dummies, that tells you everything you want to know about your website. Absolutely. That was written by Greg Schnell, and it will tell you everything you need to know about how stock charts works, how to start creating charts and chart lists, and how to start annotating your charts, running scans, and building a watch list. And we've also got two new things, relatively new, Stock Charts TV, and that's at stockcharts.com forward slash TV, and that's a 24-7 channel. Some of it is live and some of it is pre-recorded, but you're guaranteed to learn something. And we have some top-notch technicians, including Mark Chaikin is on our TV. And we've also got ChartCon coming up in August. And that's going to be a seminar or a webinar that is going to be broadcast through the internet. And it'll be streamed and you can watch it wherever you are on August 10th and 11th. And you can register for that two-day conference and get eligibility for the future recordings. I'm looking forward to registering for that. 
Tell our listeners if they wanted to do that, how could they do so? Just go to the website and register. Is it that easy? Yeah, if you go to stockcharts.com forward slash sales or just search for stockcharts.com chartcon, you'll get a link to this chartcon seminar that we're going to do. We're going to have Martin Pring, Dr. Alexander Eller, Tom McClellan, myself, David Keller, Tushar Chan, Greg Morris. We've got a lot of great speakers lined up. And finally, you've got to talk about one of my favorite pages on your website. It's your market summary page. I mean, you cover the major indexes, the major sectors, the major ETFs, and you also cover international bonds, commodities, currencies. You pretty much cover the whole gamut of every asset class. Yeah, that's my go-to page as well. I go to this page every day and throughout the day. And it's segmented. You got the major markets at the top and then the major indexes. And you go down to sectors and industry groups. And you can, you know, view it as intraday to see how things are happening during the day. Or you can look at end of day changes if you just want to see how things were based on the previous close. And then we got a whole bunch of industry groups, international ETFs. So right there, you can see which international ETFs are moving. For instance, I can see that India is up over 2% today, as is Malaysia, and Spain's getting a good bounce. So it's a really good spot to see what is moving. Well, it's a fabulous, fabulous website and charting service. It's stockcharts.com, and we've been speaking with Art Hill. Art, as always, thanks for coming on the program. You bet, Jim. It's great to be here, and thanks for having me. You're listening to the Financial Sense News Hour at FinancialSense.com. Remember that Financial Sense News Hour also has a daily program, and here's what went on during one of our shows this week. There are basically two reasons why we think that people should be following the economy. The first is that the stock market has a tendency to roll over and fall more than 10% about every 20 months. And so, you know, over the last 50 years, you've had 35 different corrections in the stock market. And so while the stock market is a really great way of anticipating problems in the economy, it gives you way too many signals. It's basically signaling every year and a half that there's a problem in the economy. And the reality is about a third of those are worth following. So there are too many signals in the stock market. And it's impossible to differentiate between the ones that matter and the ones that don't matter. Secondly, you can anticipate the high in the stock market by using some of the macro indicators that we follow. And the yield curve that you mentioned is one of those things. So the yield curve has had a tendency to invert an average of 19 months before the next recession. So the stock market peaks seven months, but the yield curve inverts 19 months before the next recession. So it gives you a heads up that when stock prices peak and roll over, that this is something that you should be paying attention to. Well, 
Well, the price of gold is up for the year, but it's been having difficulty. As many of the technicians on the program have said, 1350-1380 seems to be a resistance level. We've tried to broach that area several times, have been unable to. What we're going to do today is look at gold, but from a different perspective. What's going on in the industry? with the exploration companies, as well as the producers. Joining me on the program is Dr. Keith Barron. He is chairman and CEO of Arania Resources, a gold exploration company. Keith, I want to look at the gold markets from a different perspective. What's going on in the industry? And let's begin with the producers. You have large companies like Newmont, Freeport, you have Barrick. A lot of these companies shuttered a lot of their gold projects in the downturn in gold that began in 2011. A lot of them, just like the oil industry, got rid of much of their exploration department. The problem with gold producers, just like oil producers, what are they doing to increase production or replace the gold that they produce? In other words, what's going on with exploration when you look at gold producers? Yeah, well, it's an interesting situation and something that I've commented on several times out there in public. You know, I've spoken at many conferences about what I call peak gold. And of course, I know that your listeners are familiar with the concept of peak oil. Peak gold is very similar. So it's a situation where we've really found all the major deposits around the world that are easily found and exploited them. And really, from here on out, we have a declining production for the foreseeable future. Unless somebody comes up with some sort of magic bullet to find more gold in the ground, and that certainly doesn't seem to be forthcoming. For the majors right now, it's actually been reported on just recently, Ian Telfer, who's the chairman of Gold Corp, has said that we've reached peak gold. Last year, there was a meeting that was convened, and Randall Oliphant, the head of the World Gold Council, also said that we had reached peak gold. And this is a little bit alarming for people who watch the industry. So what does it mean? What's the future for these large companies? Well, 10 years ago, it was a situation in the industry that really the companies wanted to amass as many ounces in the ground as they could, and they all said that they were leveraged to the price of gold. That was the term that they used, leverage, and also to attract the funds, to attract the investments. Being the largest was being the best, and so there were a number of deposits. Pascualama, which is very close to a glacier up in the Andes, is one that Barrick spent a lot of money on. And these things, some of them didn't get built. Some of them turned out not to be really worthwhile. Some of them technically were unsound. And so there was a lot of money that was blown, really to just have pole position in there so that you could attract the big funds. And the industry got beaten up pretty badly. There are a lot of executives who were fired. There are a lot of changeovers of boards. And then there was really a sea change, and a lot of the companies downsized. They offloaded mines that were not making any money or had virtually no reserves left. 
and decided that they were going to emerge lean and mean and be able to go out there and tackle the world again. Well, they have. They all cut their expiration groups because the first people to go are always the expiration, and they haven't found the deposits. So we're in a bit of a quandary. The majors, you know, some of them are just kind of treading water. They're replacing deposits that are being mined quickly and diminishing. They're replacing them with other ones, but they're not really growing the total amount of resources and reserves that they have within the company under their control. And then there are other ones where the reserve curve is just going down. And that's kind of the kiss of death. You wonder how long are they going to be able to keep that up before eventually they're attractive for a takeout. So let me ask you, because I was a believer in peak oil, still am, but along came something called horizontal drilling, fracking, shale oil that changed the oil markets dramatically to the point where the U.S. has exceeded oil production of Saudi Arabia. Keith, is there something technologically possible that would allow, let's say, a large producer to either extract more gold or, for example, find more gold? In other words, are there certain kinds of technology that enables you to discover more gold in the ground than possible? In other words, technologically, is there anything like that out there? No, not really. The only thing that really has come up in the last couple of years is a treatment of big data. And what I mean by that is this actually was initiated by Rob McEwen with Gold Corp, and he started something called the Gold Corp Challenge. And basically what he did was take all of the records of the underground mine, of the Red Lake mine that had been amassed for, oh gosh, since the 1930s, and put it all online. And so he put it online and he ran an international competition. I think that the first prize, if I remember correctly, it's quite some years ago, was a million dollars. So if somebody could find new reserves for him using this data package, they would win the prize. Well, as you know, Rob is a, a consummate promoter. He knows his stuff, and he did an extremely good job with this and really did put Gold Corp on the map. And, of course, the people who did come up with the prize, it was a company out of Australia called Fractal Graphics. I think they came up with 10 new ore zones underground that they ended up extracting and making a lot of money from. So, you know, you can, through process of digitization and really using computer algorithms and a lot of stuff that wasn't available to people in the past, you can kind of walk through the data. In fact, there are some universities now that have virtual rooms where you put the glasses on and you actually walk through the underground data like you were walking through the mine. It's all virtual, a real experience. I've never done it myself, but these are some of the tools that are being used today to find more ore. But really, you know, it's just going after largely the dregs that are left behind for many years of mining. And it's not effective to go out there and find brand new deposits in greenfield areas. 
I want to talk about gold mining itself. There was a prolific gold belt in South Africa. South Africa used to be the largest gold producer in the world. A lot of those mines are seeing declining production. In fact, Keith, you know, they're digging down so deep. I think, what is it, a mile or two below the Earth's surface? You've actually been down that deep in some of those mines. Are there any areas left? For example, when we think of oil, we think of the Middle East, where there's large deposits of oil that still remain in Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Iraq. Is there any other regions of the world or the possibility of other regions around the world where you would have a prolific geological gold belt? It'd be interesting for your listeners to hear my experience in South Africa. I went down western deeps a long, long time ago, and I went down more than five kilometers. It was 135 degrees Fahrenheit Wow! at the face. 135. The miners were all sitting on their backsides working the drills. There was a 55-centimeter zone a working area. 55 centimeters is like a foot and a half. It's not a lot of room at all. And all these guys were kind of crushed in there, and there are all kinds of devices being used to hold up the ceiling. And they were spraying water constantly to keep the temperature down. So the humidity was more or less 100%. And we had to wear safety goggles on the ground, but they would fog up absolutely instantaneously. So very, very difficult place to work. Now, you can't really go much deeper than that because as you go deeper in the earth, everybody knows it gets warmer. In some places in the world, it gets very, very hot very quickly. So you cannot go too deep. Maybe sometime in the future, you'll be able to use robots, but certainly you can't take humans down there. Prolific gold belts. You know, there are some new kind of frontier areas. I'm working in one of them in Ecuador, and my former company, I found a very large gold deposit of 13.7 million ounces back in 2006. That was working in Ecuador in really a frontier area along the border with Peru. Now, I'm back there again with a different company, but I'm there because it's a frontier area, and the frontier areas are where you, you're going to find the elephant-sized deposits. A lot of companies are reluctant to do that. They want what are called brownfields projects, so they want to be within infrastructure and within sight of a head frame, which is the shaft head frame that runs where they have the winding gear and everything for underground. They want to be within sight of that. But really, a lot of these places, like, for instance, the Timmins Gold Camp in northern Ontario, it's just been done to death. They are making discoveries there, but they're not too big, and they are much, much lower grade than what was found back in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Another place that comes to mind is the Pilbara in Western Australia, and that has been in the news lately because there's been a lot of gold nuggets found on the surface. And then in a rock we call conglomerate, and conglomerate is basically just like gravel that's been lithified or kind of stuck together like concrete. And these nuggets are embedded in this stuff. That is a very, very interesting thing. So, you know, I've been watching that play very carefully. And, you know, I do invest in these things myself as well. So I'm always looking for opportunities for investments anywhere around the world. 
But, you know, not only does it get harder from the tech... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Technological aspect, but if you're working in the U.S., and people say this to me all the time, they say, oh, you know, I don't want to go to places like Ecuador because there's political risk. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is, if you found anything in the U.S., you'd have the Sierra Club and the Friends of the Earth and the World Wildlife Fund and everybody else on your back. And they would be bringing court actions and injunctions to stop you from doing what you're doing. And really, the political risk in America is very, very high. You can't get a project going in California these days, not for love nor money. Even places like Nevada that have been very, very prospective and are a huge part of the mining business, it's getting harder and harder to do things. If you want to do some drilling for exploration, in Nevada now, you have to permit every single drill hole. And you can imagine just how long that takes. And, you know, you really have to come up with every kind of spot you could think of in your mind, maybe a year or two in advance that you may want to drill in the future just to get the paper down so that you can actually do it on the day. <laughs> you bring up something that's kind of important when it comes to uh, the gold production arena, and that is the producers, the big guys, aren't finding the elephant finds. What they do have are smaller. In the last decade, Keith, the expiration the junior mining companies, like the one that you ran, it was the juniors that were going out and doing the wildcat drilling, so to speak, in finding the deposits. And if it was sizable and the grades were good, well, they got taken out like your company did. So let's talk about the junior space, because in the last decade, money was just being thrown at juniors, you could just start a company, raise capital, money flowed into the sector. That's not the case today. Let's talk about the shape of junior mining companies, where they stand today. I know capital is harder to come by. There's fewer of those companies around, fewer companies doing exploration. Let's talk about the junior mining sector. Really, what we in the junior mining business are set up for, not really to eventually become producers. Very, very few companies morph into production, though that may be the stated goal that they convey to the shareholders. The reality is that a lot of the juniors, first of all, they never, ever be able to attract the money to put a mine into production, and they don't have the experience. So they don't have the financial background or maybe the engineering background. Many of them have never, ever brought mines in production. So that's really not going to happen. What we're much better at doing is finding the stuff, and then we get taken out. And sometimes it's a friendly takeout. Sometimes it's a hostile takeout. But this is the way that the majors are growing these days, not organically, but through mergers and acquisitions. 
And because a lot of them have decimated their exploration teams, they're just not going out and finding the deposits. And this is going to be the wave of the future. It's already out there and has been there for about 10, 12 years. So when a junior gets acquired, there's usually a tender out for the shares and the offer could be, say, 30% or maybe 50% higher than, let's say, the shares have been trading over a calendar month, something like that. That's often the way that these offers are being presented. And depending on what jurisdiction you're in, you know, sometimes 51% of the shares have to be tendered to the deal. Sometimes it has to be 60, sometimes it has to be 75%. And then once that's happened, then the remaining shareholders are, are forced to either take the paper or take the cash or a combination of the two from the acquiring entity. So, you know, that's part of it. The other part of it is financing. And, you know, in our business, what they call us flaming matches. And they do that because we are always looking for money. Expiration is expensive. And once you're onto something in the ground, you just want to bring more drills in and spend more money on it. Certainly, that's what happened with Fruita del Norte. The discovery I was involved in in 2006, we ended up having more than 12 drills there. And that gets very, very expensive. So you have to go to the markets and raise some money, some more funds to accomplish it. But certainly, if your expertise is finding deposits and developing them and then successfully transferring them on to a bigger operator, a major, and making a lot of money for the shareholders, then you'll attract the funds. Well, let's talk about where we are today compared to, let's say, in the last decade. Keith, in the last decade, as larger companies bought out exploration companies with deposits, the price and the bidding price got to be at such a level, it almost became uneconomic. And this happened to a lot of companies. And this gets back to your point about everything was all based on how big you could get. And so you saw a lot of companies overpay in terms of prices to buy these companies. Certainly, we're not in that situation today. Would you agree? I certainly agree. I think that's pretty obvious where we are right now. You discovered a major deposit, one of the biggest deposits and discoveries in the last couple decades. You're back there once again. What brought you back? Well, <laughs> I think it's one of the best mineral belts in the whole world, and it hasn't received a lot of exploration. And that's been for a number of reasons. Some of it's been due to lack of infrastructure, just difficulty getting in, lack of even topographic maps uh, that have only been generated really in the last couple of years in some of the border areas. And, you know, you go into these places and you see people, artisanal miners who are recovering gold by panning in the streams and in the rivers. And you think to yourself, boy, oh boy, you know, this gold's got to be coming from somewhere. And obviously it is. But the artisanal miners don't have any access to technology, of course, and they don't know how to follow these things up. And, you know, we bring every method to bear that's been successfully used by us in the past with my former company to find the stuff in the ground. And I'm hoping that eventually we're going to be very successful. We're doing pretty well so far. 
Keith, you pointed out political risk, and you point out about the environmental problems of trying to get a mine permitted in the U.S. A number of years ago, and maybe this is one reason why the mining industry changed, countries like, for example, Mexico, where there's large gold and silver deposits, you couldn't get access to property rights, and so companies were reluctant to go in and mine something if you knew the government could confiscate it. Let's talk about political risk, because Mexico changed its mining laws, and they strengthened property rights, contract law, and that certainly brought in money into the area for development. Are you seeing that take place in some of these countries, for example, the country you're operating in, in Ecuador, And do you see that expanding or do you see, for example, countries going the way Venezuela did, which is basically they confiscated assets. And of course, now Venezuela is a wreck. Yeah, Venezuela, actually, I was working there in the 90s and they passed a law. They said that we're going to throw out all the companies with the exception of Chinese, Iranian and Russian. And they let them operate for a few years, and then Hugo Chavez threw them out as well and nationalized the whole thing, and then it became just a basket case with no investments and just a lot of artisanal miners flooding the rivers and streams with silts and mercury-laden tailings. So the whole thing is a mess. There's one deposit called Las Cristinas, and the place is just like a moonscape right now. And very little money has ever gone to to the government in taxes. It's just gone to the black market. Every so often, a populist leader comes along like Chavez, and they think that they can cure all the ills of the country by nationalizing the deposits, taking the money, and then they promise that they're going to dish it all out to the poor. And we've seen similar sorts of things in the last couple of years in Zambia, in Mongolia. Gosh, we even saw it in Australia. They were going to bring in some punitive royalties, I think 20% at one time, and this is the Rudd government, and it fell as a result of this craziness. Now, in Ecuador, they tried a similar sort of thing about 10 years ago, not nationalization, but trying to bring in a windfall profits tax that's in the process of being repealed right now because they've realized that it's very negative for investment. Companies walked and nobody wanted to put a dollar into the place anymore. Things have really, really turned around there because they were relying on the oil industry to carry the weight And then the oil price suddenly got smashed, and they have no viable minerals industry. So they have to do something to encourage foreign investors like myself to come back. And they've really started to turn things around. You know, in other countries, well, it depends on where you go. I mean, Argentina's having a little bit of a kind of a come-to-Jesus moment as well. And they're reversing a lot of their former policies. But other places are getting tougher, especially one that comes to mind right today is the Congo. Very, very difficult place to work. Not only is it dangerous, but the taxes are confiscatory. And, you know, same sort of thing in Tanzania going on right now. It's just difficult in several regimes in Africa. What about Mexico? You have the leading candidate there, Obrador, who's a socialist. Does that pose a risk? Because what really opened up mining in Mexico is when they allowed foreigners to come in, acquire land, develop it. Of course, they would get royalties. 
But is there a risk of danger to Mexico's mining industry with a new president or possibility of a new president who is talking about nationalization? Well, that's always a worry. And, you know, when Clinton was in power in the U.S., they wanted to bring down a 5% royalty on gold production in Nevada, and that didn't happen. So when there's a change of political regime, this is always a worry. And it really behooves the industry leaders in these various countries to engage with the government all the time. It has to be on a continual basis and let them know how very, very important our industry is to their countries. Otherwise, if you just kind of put your head in the sand, you're going to get whacked. (laughs) So as we look at the mining industry today, and as many of these key companies, including Goldcorp, talk about peak gold, you believe in peak gold, it seems to me that the only way that any major producer is going to grow is to actually mine for gold on Wall Street rather than in the ground. And it seems to me if you were investing in the sector, there's two ways to do it. You could buy the bullion because eventually the price will rise for a number of factors we're not getting into today on the program. But on the equity side of things, it seems like you have more upside potential in a promising explorer than you do a producer. Because if a producer cannot increase their production, the only way they're going to grow is either acquire somebody else or hope that the price of the mineral itself goes up. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. You know, the explorers have got the possibility to turn a piece of moose pasture if it's in northern Canada or a piece of jungle if it's in South America into something very, very valuable almost overnight. My former company, the share price shot up from 46 cents to a high of $43. And where else are you going to get that kind of a return (laughs) unless you're doing something illegal? I'm in love with the industry. I have been ever since I started almost 35 years ago. And I think it's a fantastic way to make money, but you have to be smart about it. You have to be in the right piece of real estate, an area that's prospective ground. You have to have very, very good people working for you with very good powers of observation. And you have to uh, be able to raise the cash to do the expiration and follow through with the plan. And if you can do all those sorts of things, then you've really mitigated a lot of the risk to this business. That being said, there's a lot of companies out there, you know, we call them lifestyle companies. And if you do your due diligence, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And these are companies that will raise money, will pay their chief executives a huge amount of the money that they've raised and keep going to the well many times just to keep their chief executive in a lifestyle to which he's become accustomed. (laughs) But that's not going to do anything for the shareholders. There's a lot of those companies out. But believe me, expiration is not like throwing darts into a dartboard. And it's not like gambling. And we know that because there are a number of people in this industry have been able to pull it off many times. David Lowell, who lives in Arizona, I think he found maybe seven or eight mines to his credits. And Norman Keeble Sr., who started the tech company, he found, uh, I think, 12 mines during his life. He was an explorationist. There are many people who do it many times, and it's not because they've swallowed some horseshoes. It's because they actually know what they're doing. 
Well, Keith, as we close, if our listeners would like to find out about the company that you run, and you also have another website where you talk about issues relating to mining gold and exploration, would you mind giving the website out, please? I write an occasional blog. I'm very, very busy these days, so I haven't written for a long time, but I keep the site up more or less for educational purposes, and I think it is valuable for people to look at. It's all one word, straighttalkonmining.com, straighttalkonmining.com. The company of which I'm chairman and CEO of is Arania Resources Limited, and our website is A-U-R-A-N-I-A.com. And I invite your listeners to uh, give it a look-see. We've got a lot of really, really interesting videos, and you can almost vicariously join in the exploration and see what we do. Well, summer's here, and normally with summer, we see a higher demand on oil because of the traveling that everybody does in the summertime. And if you notice that the pumps' prices are scunching upward, so are oil prices headed higher, or is this just a seasonal flux? Uh, We're going to take a look at the issue of the case for and the case against higher oil prices coming up next on The Big Picture, as well as dividends. Do they still matter? Because a while back on the program, we were telling you you should be buying blue-chip dividend stocks. Well, some of those seem to be running into difficulty. So do dividends still matter? All of that coming up next on the Financial Sense News Hour at FinancialSense.com. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense NewsHour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies profiled on or advertised with Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the NewsHour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.